This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Yishai Sarid, author of The Memory Monster. What people almost everywhere in Europe tell me is that uh, for young people, the Holocaust is already uh, almost an ancient history. We'll be back with Yishai Sarid in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back again. We are going through monumental changes as a society right now, and as I discussed in an episode earlier this year with the writer Claire Massoud, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and if you value this program, please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes and cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. Whether this is your first time listening or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversations about what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and organization more than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will go to the continuation of the conversations that you've heard before and you're about to hear again on literary craft, content, and practice as well as the culture we inhabit. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Yishai Sarid, who was born and raised in Tel Aviv, Israel. He served as an intelligence officer in the Israeli army, studied law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, earned a public administration master's degree from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, and works as a lawyer and arbitrator in Israel. He has published five novels. The most recent is titled The Memory Monster, which is written as a report to the chairman of Yad Vashem, Israel's memorial to the victims of the Holocaust. The unnamed protagonist becomes a leading expert of extermination at concentration camps in Poland during World War II and leads tours through the sites for young Israelis and visiting dignitaries. As time goes on, however, the narrator becomes obsessed with facts and then existential questions about life and death, cruelty and mercy, and the use of force on other human beings. The novel asks fundamental questions about human brutality and how we move forward after suffering so much, and how to confront force if it happens again. We began the discussion with Yishai Sarid sharing how he started writing his novel, The Memory Monster. 
You know, the issue of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, is um, very much exists in, uh, in our life as Israelis, both personally and collectively, you know, uh, even in very small things like not sending your child to, to school without, without enough food, you know, or some uh, things like this, and all the way up to uh, national security issues, and uh, etc. So it's... Um, Memory of Holocaust is very um, important part of our psychology, and for me personally, you know, it's part of of the story of the history of my family because um, um, family members from both sides, um, parents and uh, uh, siblings of my grandparents, were murdered during the Holocaust in Europe. And uh, my family name is uh, Sarid, which in Hebrew it means a remnant, because uh, something that was left, left the only, you know, a remainder of, uh, of a big family that was killed in Europe. So all of this is a heavy burden lying on me, you know, since uh, childhood, and probably on all of us uh, Israelis. Um, but for many years, you know, I didn't do anything with it um, uh, artistically because I knew I don't want to invent a Holocaust story. I don't like invented or fictional Holocaust stories or movies. I, I didn't feel comfortable or I didn't want to write something which is completely documentary. So uh, for many years, I just read. I read a lot, a lot about the Holocaust, uh, history books, and the uh, memoirs of um, uh, survivors, and uh, um, uh, many other texts that uh, relate to the issue. Until on uh, 2015, I went for Poland. I decided to, to go to Poland for one week, more than one week, maybe 10 days. And they went through, I took a car from Warsaw Airport and um, for uh, 10 days went through all the um, extermination camps in, uh, in Poland. And um, when I came back, I was really, you know, devastated, emotionally devastated. My wife told me, listen, you are not okay. And uh, then I knew I, I need to do, I need to take this burden out of, and, you know, off my shoulders. Um, and they suddenly knew how exactly I want to write it. It should be a story that takes place nowadays, but the historical facts should be accurate 100%. And then I, I started to write it, and it was quite, quite fast, actually. You know, it's really told as a letter to an official in Yad Vashem through this narrator. Can you first tell our listeners a little bit about Yad Vashem, in case they don't know, and then about your narrator? Yeah, Yad Vashem is um, the, the official uh, Israeli, it's a government uh, organization who is responsible for the keeping the memory of, uh, of the Holocaust and the research um, on the history of the Holocaust. Uh, it's a very important organization, and uh, it resembles, you know, the official uh, collective memory of, of the Holocaust on uh, Jewish or Israeli eyes. And uh, Yad Vashem is making a lot of uh, good things, uh, very uh, important activities. And uh, among other things, it um, uh, trains the guides to take, uh, you know, maybe I should say a word about this scene that almost every Israeli high school student uh, goes to Poland as, uh, in a Holocaust journey when he's 17 or 18, before recruiting to the army. Um, these are uh, official uh, tours or journeys of uh, whole schools that are going there. It's a kind of a passage ride for Israelis uh, young people. And the Yad Vashem uh, trains the guides for those um, uh, journeys and also uh, gives uh, more or less the scripts for, uh, for those journeys, how to explain the Holocaust to those young people. Now, uh, my narrator, my protagonist, is uh, such a guide, is a young Israeli historian who didn't want to, to deal with the Holocaust. He, he, was, um, he was worried that it would be too much for him. He thought about some remote historical thing like ancient history of, uh, you know, Far East or something like this. But then he imagined 
and that uh, he will not be able to uh, make a living uh, out of uh, such a subject. So he decided to uh, um, uh, specialize in the history of, uh, of the Holocaust. And among other things, he also um, uh, takes those groups as a guide to, uh, to Poland. And the story is a story of uh, two or three years of uh, this career of him. And where did it uh, take him? Your narrator, who is unnamed, is he, he gets into it, as you said, it's, it's really about making money. It's not that he has this passion, but as you read and you learn more and more about the journey, you go deeper and deeper into his mental state and you watch it change both in how he just amassed all these facts about the Holocaust and then just dove deeper into that that trauma and and that um, horror in in the very beginning he talks about kids like he's giving these these tours at these really significant meaningful places and all the kids are just like on their iPhones you know the kids first of all it's an adventure it's going abroad and um, uh, with all your class and it's it's kind of fun it's, it's an adventure but those youngsters are expected to be very serious, not to make fun there, not to go out in the evenings, not to, uh, you know, God forbid, uh, bring a bottle of vodka to the uh, to the hotel, not to laugh, etc., etc. So it's kind of it's it's a very stressed atmosphere, and the worst um, nightmare of the teachers are that there is going to be some scandal. And that would be published in the Israeli newspapers the day after. So they keep um, very close watch at uh, the students. And um, it's it's a very heavy burden on young people. You know, in Israel, we have, I'll give you an example. We have um, uh, once a year a Memorial Day for the Holocaust. And on 11 o'clock, 11 a.m., uh, there's this big and loud siren going off, going on on the air all over the country. And uh, everybody uh, stands up uh, in honor of, of the victims. Uh, but what do you explain to little children, you know, children in kindergartens that hear that siren or in, you know, in, uh, in, in elementary school? What can you explain to them? How do you explain to them this horror of six million people being murdered and why and how, etc., etc.? And even though, you know, 17 or 18 years old are not uh, babies anymore, are not young children anymore, nevertheless, it's, it's, um, it's very problematic to, to put all of it, all of this horror on their shoulders. And those those sites, those places are terrible places until nowadays. You know, I, I was there as I told you a few years ago, and it's, it's terrible to see all the things, to see how people were murdered in um, like you know like animals, worse than animals. It's it's very very hard. So it's just natural for young people, you know, to use uh, naturally some uh, defense mechanisms that helped them cope with uh, with this horror. Yeah, it's almost that, you know, as you age, you can see it more clearly and that when you're younger, you can't look at it fully, like you can't absorb it. And I felt that about your narrator. And one of the qualities about your narrator that I want to talk about deeper, but I want to start on the most surface level, is that he was very, very attached to this minutia, to the to the very fine details. He he instead of looking really at the big picture, he looked at like what stance maybe they were walking in when they when they walked into a gas chamber or just how many people were there. All the things that he could grasp onto that were very literal. That's a very important point because what happened to me while I was reading about the Holocaust is uh, at a certain point the field I'm beginning to be ob obsessed by the details, the details of the extermination process, 
what kind of gas they used in each camp. Did they um, take the, the women's hair before or after the killing? What kind of music the orchestras, you know, there were orchestras of prisoners in those camps, in part, some of those camps, what kind of music they played? And all kind of strange and terrible, terrible details that somehow became uh, important to me. And in certain point, I told to myself, listen, it's too much. It's too much and you are losing the big picture and you are you don't see the, uh, the big lessons, the real lessons of this, uh, uh, of this tragedy. And this is what happening to my narrator because he knows everything about the Holocaust. He knows all the smallest details about what happened there. But in a certain point, he's, he starts to look for, for, for the victims, you know, although he knows, of course, it's impossible. He lo- he's looking for their eyes. He tries to hear their voices uh, because he's, he's, he feels really bad about going over and over again, almost each day with those groups over the details of the murder. It's, it's terrifying him. It destroys his life, and he, he, he wants to do something different. He wants to remember in a different way. Yeah, you have a line in the very beginning. It's on page eight. Um, it says, I was drawn to the technical details of annihilation. And just in that sentence, you understood that by looking at the minutiae, like looking at it minute by minute instead of big picture, that it was a way of avoiding looking at it directly. I think he survived like this for a while, and he was he was almost as militaristic in his insistence on the truth because he's writing a book and he might go on about this this band and the orchestra and what they were playing for pages and pages in his book and his editor didn't want it, but he insisted on it because that's kind of all he could see. There was a turning point for him where some people were consulting with him because he's such an expert of details. He really is a go-to guy who are making like a video game and I felt that once he got absorbed into this video game that's replicating this experience, he started to see it in a different way. Yeah, that's uh, you are right. That's that's part. That's that's kind of a turning point. I'm not sure that's the only thing that uh, happened to him. Um, I think he is also caught in, um, in 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 some thoughts about. What really happened there? What are the lessons to be learned from the from the Holocaust? You are right that he's uh, very task oriented. He treats the exhibition almost in a military uh, fashion, military style. He wants to do it uh, as perfect as possible. And in the beginning, he goes hand by hand with the um, uh, official script of Yad Vashem. But as time goes by, he understands, he feels that it's not enough, that it doesn't cover the real meaning of the Holocaust. He feels that the real um, heroes of, of the story he tells are not the Jewish victims, because when they were brought to the um, to the last phase of their life in those terrible camps, they were all, you know, they were half human already. They were starved. They were humiliated. They were after months of or years of starvation, humiliation, and beating by the Germans, etc., etc. So what we are doing in those journeys and in this reading is reacting time after time the killing process was orchestrated and done by the Germans. So the, the, the heroes, the active persons in this story, although villain and, you know, and terrible uh, heroes are the, are the Germans. And he asked himself why I, I want to commemorate the living. I want to commemorate the life of, of the victims. I want to make the commemorate the people who were murdered by but before the murder they had lives they they had families they had love stories they had jobs they had friendships etc etc like any normal other human being and he thinks that we, we are not doing um, a right with them we're not um, uh, we're not uh, remembering them the right way yeah and I think that is 
one of the challenges is when you compare six million to the smaller number of of German soldiers. It was probably easier for him to learn more about the German soldiers who had faces and were documented and were pictured than the masses who went off. It's a much harder journey and, and harder emotionally. Sure. And there's also uh, another thing that, you know, I didn't censorship. I didn't censor myself in, uh, in the book. So I wrote whatever crossed my mind. There's also some kind of fascination with the murderers, with their terrible uh, elegance, with the powers, with them being that they didn't have any uh, limits or uh, borders. So we are somehow attracted or fascinated by by this uh, process instead of thinking about, about the victims. Now, if you ask, you know, ordinary people, name me one person who was killed in the in the Holocaust. I think many, many people, maybe most of humankind, will tell you one name, which is Anna Frank. You know, because everybody knows Anna Frank. But there were six million people, which each and one, each and every one of them had um, um, a special story, unique story of his life, and we don't learn about those people. We don't commemorate their life. And uh, therefore, it becomes very hard on him. So he was really concerned with the capos and the yeah the Zunder commander. So those are Jews who either had to clean up after the gas chambers and the executions, clean up the bodies, or people who somehow wor- worked in service to the Germans for a better life. And it was something that he really looked straight on at. And it's a really complicated thing. There were collaborators who were forced by the Germans to uh, cooperate with the extermination process under the immediate threat of uh, of murder, of death. So they didn't have much choice. But nevertheless, this is, of course, one of the bothering things, troubling things about the, the Holocaust. And it was part of the sinister plan of the Germans. It was intentional. It wasn't uh, something that happened by accident. The Germans planned uh, in advance that they will um, uh, force uh, the Jews to cooperate with their own uh, murder, with their own destruction. And you see it in the Judenrats, which were the um, uh, so-called, it was ridiculous, but it was considered to be some self-rule of the Jews in their villages after the German uh, occupation that was forced to cooperate with the extermination process. And you see it with the couples in the in the camps, and you see it with the Zonder commandos where the uh, Jewish people who were Jewish men were forced, you know, to do the dirty work around the gas chambers and in the gas chambers, etc. But that is something that happened, and that's part of the hard time Israelis uh, have with the memory the memory of the Holocaust. It's not only that we were helpless and couldn't protect ourselves and our children, it's also that we were forced to cooperate with our own uh, murder. That's very hard for him, that's very hard uh, for us. Once again, it was part of the plan of the Germans, you know, to humiliate the Jewish people and show them to to the end that, look at you miserable people, how you cooperate with your own death. That, that was terrible. And by the way, that was not exceptional for the Jews because that's the way they made um, uh, people cooperate with them all over Europe under the threat of uh, of murder and of death. And that is something which is very troubling because I, I think about myself, you know, it's, it's the first thing I think, how would I uh, behave in such a time, in such an environment? Would I be a brave man and not be a couple and not be a Zonder commando and not cooperate? Or most probably, like most people will do under such a threat, uh, will be forced to cooperate, which is a terrible thing. But, you know, the um, people are doing all kind of terrible things under such uh, circumstances. It seemed like that was very complicated in terms of Yad Vashem and their recognition of these people. It's interesting because in the first years of the state of Israel, during the 1950s, there were incidences where a person who was a Holocaust survivor walked on the street in Tel Aviv, for example, and suddenly saw a person who was a capo in the, in the camp. 
Some of them yelled police, police. He was a capo. He cooperated with the murder of, of other people in this camp, of my family, of my friends. Come and arrest, uh, arrest him. And on those uh, remote years, there were some uh, trials uh, in Israel, in court, for those capos. But um, after a few of them, it was, it was uh, obvious that you could not go on with this because you could not judge people about what they did in such circumstances. It's, they didn't initiate it. They didn't want do it from their own free will. And um, they, they stopped with this. They, they didn't go on with this. But, but it's a subject that is being discussed and being investigated. There's a very good book I read um, uh, quite a few years ago, which um, uh, in it there are interviews with uh, Holocaust survivors who were Zonder commandos at Auschwitz. And they, they tell the terrible details of, of what they were forced to do there and their um, thoughts on that time. But they had to survive somehow, you know, but this is the, the worst thing a person can, can, can carry on, on him for the future. But those people talked about it very openly and plainly, and it's heartbreaking. And one of the things that your narrator came to a conclusion about as he dug deeper and started to really hear the voices and have visualizations of, of people at the camps when they were populated was that in some ways you have to be a bit brutal. He, he was talking to, to the kids and one of them said in one time, basically in order to survive, we need to be a little bit Nazi too. And he thought a lot about like, why did all these people, why didn't they rebel? Yeah. That, that, that's a terrible line. One of the kids tells him, but it's very human, you know, it's uh, this skill which is still naive and he tells, he tells him very bluntly in such a cruel word where um, uh, violence is, um, is still uh, such an important factor. And um, so you have to be a little bit Nazi to, to survive, which is, you know, an awful thing for an Israeli boy to say, but nevertheless, it's, it's something that exists in our thoughts. Regarding the issue of uh, rebellion or uh, armed uh, resistance against, against the Germans, it was almost impossible because Jewish people on that, they were scattered around Europe. They were not organized in any army or militia or something like this. They were not armed. They were not uh, trained to be soldiers. Um, uh, many, many of them had uh, small children and uh, families. So, you know, and when, when you have a family and children, you just want to keep them alive and you are not going to, to commit suicide usually. Think, nevertheless, we know that there were few rebellions. The, the most um, famous or uh, prominent um, armed resistance of Jewish people during the Holocaust was in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943 in which a very small, a few dozens of uh, young uh, Jewish uh, uh, fighters were armed only with, you know, few rifles, few pistols and Molotov cocktails, kept the whole division of, uh, uh, of the German, of the Nazi army for a few weeks uh, with a very courageous resistance. And this is a symbol for, um, for Jewish uh, bravery, you know, and uh, all of this. But as time goes by, you understand that the real bravery or courage was of those mothers who tried to uh, survive with their children and find them food. And they crossed the hardships and of the, of the teachers who uh, insisted on going on teaching their uh, pupils in uh, impossible circumstances of hunger and uh, misery and persecution. Uh, so courage had a lot, uh, a lot of faces in the um, uh, in the Holocaust, but of course the Israeli perspective is that because we shouldn't uh, let it happen again, so we have to be very very strong. We have to be good soldiers. We have to be armed to our teeth, and um, um, we have to be uh, cruel sometimes. So, do you think as he dug deeper and he he stopped looking? at the minutiae and looked at the bigger picture and, and saw 
like in his mind's eye, he saw the people going to their deaths. He started to hear their voices. Do you think he became more compassionate or less compassionate or, or just how did, how do you characterize his change? He became less compassionate, compassionate to, to those groups he, um, he directs or teaches because uh, his thoughts are so complicated and confused that he cannot uh, convey to other people. It uh, goes very far away from the script that Yad Vashem gave him. So uh, in the end, he's, being, he's fired, you know, they don't want him anymore. And he's not, it, it doesn't go in line with the lesson that uh, Israeli society expects him to uh, convey to those uh, youngsters. And on the same time, it's not a, a matter of compassion. It's, it's a matter of the very hard questions he asks himself. For example, he asks himself, what would you do? What would I do if you want? If I hear a knock on my door in the middle of the night and I open the door and I see there a strange boy, all dirty and uh, bruised and hungry. And I don't know him, he's not, he's also not of my, you know, he's not Jewish, he's not related to me any, in any way. And he asks, he begs me to, to come in and uh, feed him and uh, give him shelter. Would I let him in? Well, maybe I will, maybe I will, at least for a while, you know, if I'm a good person. But if you add to it a threat of death, if you add to it, the, I ask myself, and what happens, would you open the door and let him stay if you know that uh, you uh, endanger your, yourself and your family, that you'll be executed uh, by somebody if you let him in, because that's forbidden by law, like it was in the war, like the, the Germans executed people who let in uh, Jewish people. Would you do it now? Well, that's uh, much more complicated now. I'm not so sure about it. Maybe not. Probably not. And that's uh, something which is uh, hard to live with because that's the answer he gives himself and I give to myself. I probably won't be such a, a hero. We all think about ourselves uh, as uh, potentially righteous among the nations, as people would risk themselves to save others. But when you look into the details and ask yourself the very hard questions, it's not so obvious. So that's, that's the main thing that haunts him to the end. And he understands that the Holocaust is, bears so many moral questions and, uh, which cannot be answered, and that um, it really can happen again. Maybe not, you know, it, it shouldn't be uh, necessarily with Germans. It could happen anywhere. But the main factors that enable the Holocaust, the, the, the terror of the regime, the kidnap of democracy, the fear of individuals, the racism, the hatred towards others, etc., etc. It all exists around us in a certain in certain levels, and um, it it could all happen again. And when I ask myself, and he asks himself, what would you do in such a, uh, if that happens? Well, the the answer is not clear enough, and that's so problematic. You know, you had to, I think, I think uh, as a writer, sometimes modulate the intensity of what was going on for him. So at times he would return home. So he was spent most of his time in Poland, but he had a wife and a child, a son in Israel and his son was in kindergarten, but he couldn't really get away from it because when he would go home, his son was being bullied in kindergarten. Yeah, and that's um, th that's very important point in the book, and um, because he comes home for uh, for a short vacation from from Poland, because he's very successful in Poland, you know, he makes a career show with, uh, there with the with the Israeli uh, delegations and makes quite nice money. And when he comes home, uh, his wife tells him that um, his uh, little boy, which is uh, three or four years old, is um, bullied that, uh, by other children at the kindergarten. And then the other day he goes to the kindergarten and kind of, you know, he doesn't hit them, but he threatens uh, the, the other small children not to do it again until they whip and, you know, which is in kind of very um, outrageous way. And uh, he sees violence everywhere. He sees violence and the issue of force and the issue of how violence uh, influences our lives in every minute, in every day. 
it is all connected with him. And uh, I think we see it all over the world, and especially in Israel, the issue of the use of force and violence is very um, is very important and uh, exists around us all the time. One of the things that he does in his tours is he brings survivors along for a day or two to speak, but they're dying off. And I'm wondering what you think about how that changes the narrative of the Holocaust and what that experience might be really like in Israel right now. That's a very important because actually we are entering a new phase we're already in a new phase of the remembrance of the Holocaust because unfortunately, but that's that's the way it is, survivors becomes fewer and fewer because, you know, the war ended 75 years ago. So naturally, there are fewer and fewer survivors. And uh, when you don't have people that uh, tell you the story through their own eyes, were there. So we are much more uh, open to um, or the danger of uh, manipulation of the history and the misuse of the history and the twists of the history is, is, uh, is much greater. So, you know, I've been with this uh, book in uh, all over Europe in many places. What people almost everywhere in Europe tell me is that uh, for young people, the Holocaust is already uh, almost an ancient history. It's like for me, you know, I'm 55, so it's almost like medieval history now. It's uh, it's an old history, something uh, terrible that happened uh, many years ago, but uh, they don't see it as a part of their lives. Now, when you still have the survivors and they can hear or see and w- or watch in films the survivors, they can connect to it. But when the survivors are, are going, are uh, passing away, it's, it becomes even more remote to their lives. So the question is, how do we keep the, the history and the memory of the Holocaust alive in such a manner that will connect people nowadays, especially to young people, and teach them the lessons they should learn from the Holocaust? I'm wondering what it was like for you to write this, as you see kind of, in some ways, a disintegration of your narrator's emotions in that as he looked deeper, it was harder and harder to reconcile all these things. You know, he really, even even as the book went on and you wrote about just more personally about how these people were basically, you know, treated like pieces of meat, like they, they just didn't even have a soul. And what was it like for you? I don't know how much more research you had to do because you have a lot of facts in there. And then just emotionally to follow the journey with this narrator. Yeah, it, it was very hard and it was very, very sad. And they wrote it as if I was mourning, of course, the victims, but also ourselves and myself. Because after you get over all the details and you raise your head from this and see the larger picture, that's so terrible. That's so unbelievable. And when you think about individuals, what happened to them, you know, you go to those places. For example, there is the camp of Sobibor, which is in eastern Poland, in the woods of the ancient woods, the most ancient woods of Europe very high uh, trees and uh, this is a place where uh, maybe more than half a million uh, Jewish people were murdered there. The same day they arrived in train, they were taken off the the trains and uh, rushed to their death in the gas chambers. And there are little signs there uh, of names of people and where did they come from. And you have people who were brought there by the Germans from as far as Holland and uh, France and uh, of course from uh, uh, Czechoslovakia and from Poland itself and from other places. And you think about those people who really had lives and you know didn't do harm to, to nobody and were stuffed in those into those uh, train into those trains. It's too hard to, to think about it. But on the same time, I had to be very precise about the historical details. It was very important to be to be as precise as possible about them because um, it, it is a fictional story taking place nowadays, but the history should be corrected. I wanted also readers of this book to learn some details and some history of the Holocaust. It was very important to me. So it was emotionally a very uh, hard experience, but I had to, to 
keep alert all the time to be, you know, intellectually, I to be very uh, precise. Well, it probably helps that you're also a lawyer. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I'm also a lawyer because it, it's really, it, 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 you're trying to organize uh, facts into a coherent uh, text. That's right. That, that helps. It helps to, um, uh, yeah, sure, I think so. You're right about it. On the cover here, it says um, that it's a controversial book. And I'm wondering why or how that manifested for you in Israel. In Israel, it's, it was not controversial as it was in um, uh, outside of Israel. For example, in France or Germany or uh, Spain, where it was published, because there people were quite surprised how openly and uh, I, I, I talk about this subject about the Holocaust because they are used to treat it as some you know frozen thing in time something like a, a holy artifact you put behind the glass in a museum and you shouldn't touch it because it's so holy and because it's so sensitive. And uh, in, in the book, you know, I don't limit myself. And I write about the most unpleasant things that are connected to the story, including things that happen in Israeli society today, how the memory is misused in, in all directions. So that was probably the the intention of provocative. It's not. Uh, it's very far. I can tell you that Yad Vashem didn't like this book very much. Disliked it and uh, didn't want any um, you know uh, connection with it, uh, which is uh, unfortunate. I'm I'm you know I'm sorry for that, but that's the way it is. That's interesting because I feel like you were just looking at it directly and never looking sideways. Yeah, of course, but I don't go in their um, organized script, the orthodox way uh, we should uh, think about the Holocaust and its lessons. And they raise um, tough questions, which uh, also Israelis should ask themselves. Uh, and we are used to think about ourselves as, as eternal victims. But now, thanks God, we are very strong. We are strong. We are not helpless again. Uh, we can defend ourselves. We're a strong nation. So uh, we have also uh, things we should ask ourselves. We should ask ourselves about things that uh, are happening today and our moral obligations. And uh, Yad Vashem didn't like this uh, correlation. And I wanted to ask you about the title. It comes out in the book twice, um, kind of what it means, but how you came to that and if you wanted to say anything else about it. The memory monster, it's first of all, there's an episode in the in the book where, where the narrator's young son paints a picture of, um, of his father fighting the memory monster, actually. So this is what the direct correlation. And then in a broader sense, I think history, history is not a constant thing. History is not frozen. History is uh, changing all the time. The, the things we, we think about history, the lessons we learn from it, the way it's being uh, misused by politicians and uh, others, um, the way it pops up in unexpected uh, places. So uh, in that sense, history is a monster. And it's a monster because it influences uh, our lives very much until nowadays. I think it's not only the issue for the Holocaust. If you see in other places, I don't know much about American life, but I presume that, for example, the issue of slavery is very much a memory monster for uh, American life until such a day, until nowadays. It's uh, it's not dead. It's not dead, and it's very uh, little. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. I read a short passage from uh, The Stranger by Albert Camus, which is not very original, but what can I do is uh, one of my most favorite uh, authors. And it goes like this. It goes on the beach at uh, Algiers, his protagonist goes like this. There was the same dazzling red glare. The sea gasped for air with each shallow, stifled little wave that broke on the sand. I was walking slowly toward the rocks and I could feel my forehead swelling under the sun. All that heat was pressing down on me and making it hard for me to go on. 
And every time I felt a blast of its hot breath strike my face, I gritted my teeth, clenched my fists in my trouser pockets, and strained every nerve in order to overcome the sun and the thick darkness, drunkenness it was spilling over me. With every blade of light that flashed off the sand from a bleached shell or piece of broken glass, my jaws tightened. I walked for a long time. I, of course, you know, I read it in Hebrew, in Hebrew trans- translation, but it, uh, which is also very, very strong. And this passage touches me very much because it reminds me very much of um, Israel. It's the Mediterranean climate uh, and the landscape and the heat and sun, which reminds me very much of the beaches we have here in Israel. It's so interesting because I read that book, oh my God, probably over 30 years ago. But I I was thinking about it a lot when I read your book. Yeah, that's that's nice. That's 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 really really nice. Yeah, he's a great influence, you know. The, also, the the, the the style, which is of course the most important thing in writing, is I'm very much influenced by Camus, very much. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, I'll, I'll read the passage we already talked about about his son. His short visit to Israel to home when his uh, wife tells him that uh, the boy is being arrested, beaten at the kindergarten. And this is a passage that I'm, I'm not sure in a certain way, and I talked with, with with uh, about it with my editor, we're not sure we're going to p- keep it in, and I'm very, very glad that it's, uh, it stayed in the book. Um, and this is the passage, part of it. He got dressed with heavy movements and terrible helplessness. He wasn't especially short or weak, but he couldn't hit back, and these boys took advantage of that. I knew this because I used to be like him, but I had since realized to gain any kind of social standing, men must be capable of killing. The teacher was surprised to see me. I was a rare vision. Daddy came with you. How fun, she told Ido, was gripping my arm, his eyes on the, on the floor, and wouldn't let go. Can I speak to you in private, I said. She said this, this wasn't a convenient time. All the kids were just coming in, and she, had to greet, and she had to greet them. We have to, I insisted. He's being beaten. He doesn't want to come here. I was very tired from the flight and morning raccoons in shoot all around. I saw enemies in all the boys' eyes and the complices in the girls. So it and it goes on, and um, this is it's it's kind of strange to the to the book because it happens in another country. Most of the book happens in Poland, and it's it's not really connected connected to the timeline. But it was important to me, and I'm I'm really glad that it stayed and we didn't uh, take it off. Where do you write? I write at home. Uh, I write at home. I have a small study. I write usually at nights, going into a different atmosphere. I come back from work as a lawyer and, uh, you know, talk with my wife and my kids and uh, usually prepare dinner for them and uh, maybe watch some news on television. And and, uh, it takes time. And then when it's uh, 9 or 10 p.m., I I sit and uh, start writing, usually not more than an hour or an hour and a half every evening. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, we live uh, not far away from the beach in Tel Aviv. So I uh, go a lot to, to the beach. In summer, I swim at the sea. I swim far away and, you know, sometimes a few kilometers. It's really, really great because the beach here is, is terrific and you really can clean your head and uh, come out of the water like a new person. Uh, like I was baptized, you know. Um, and um, uh, in winter, I just go uh, along the beach and uh, watch the sea and watch the other people going there, and uh, it's really nice. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, nobody. Nobody before I 
show it to, do, to my editor and uh, more or less that's it. I don't show it to, edi- to anybody. It's very private for me. And um, I'm very much afraid of people, especially close people interfering with my work. Why did you write this? Why did you write that? It won't, you know, give a good impression of you or why this character resembles my aunt and you'll hurt her and uh, uh, such things. So I keep it to myself. How have you dealt with rejection? There was a period of rejection. My first book was published in here in Israel in uh, 1999 by a different publisher. And um, then um, actually my family life started. I had uh, three children, terrific children, and I worked very hard uh, as a lawyer. And um, uh, with that, I wrote a couple of books, which uh, frankly were not very good. And I sent them to publishers and got all negative uh, answers. And I was already, you know, kind of a published uh, writer. So I expected more, but that was the the thing. Until the next book, I think almost nine or almost 10 years passed before my, between my first and second book. And then my second book actually really started my literary career because afterwards there came, there came five books, uh, one after the other. It was a, it was a hard period, you know, it was a, I thought maybe it won't happen again. Maybe there was just one book and that's it. And what is your favorite word? It's afarsek. Afarsek in Hebrew is peach, the fruit peach, uh, because it sounds very nice and it's not um, an ordinary Hebrew book. It's come from Persian, I believe. And I like peaches and I like the sound of it. Well, thank you so much for your time and this thoughtful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Very good discussion. Thank you very much. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Yishai Sarid, author of The Memory Monster. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Dorit Rabinyan, another Israeli author who wrote a novel about a love affair between an Israeli and Palestinian, which was a controversial book in Israel. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send a huge thank you out to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.